We're operating in a worldview and a theology. We're like, no, no, no. Your relationship with your matters. Your relationship with your soul matters. There's this place as an artist where everyone else is running for cover from the rain. You want to climb the church steeple and you want to get struck by lightning. At the end of the day, you don't get a medal for being in pain and not taking anything. All you do is hurt everyone around you. John kind of thinks for a moment and he goes, This is the thing that I would want every young man to know. You want to do that intro? Uh, yeah, I think I do. I mean, I think I do. So I, I've been online and seeing these words tossed around all the time for what it feels like the last 10 years about how we're living in a postmodern world. And now it's a post-postmodern world. And there's uh, now modernity in the mix. And I kind of nod along my head and sort of go, yeah, yeah, postmodern and postmodernity. And don't really know what they mean most of the time and the ways that the people are using them I can kind of figure out contextually but uh, like what exactly so we're here because our age actually still kind of is postmodern and not in the ways that you might think if any associations are coming up when you hear that word but we do live in a world where postmodern concepts still have an enormous amount of sway. So this is what we're going to do. Rather than assume that postmodernism means one thing and argue with it or anything like that, we're going to talk about five cataclysmic moments in culture. I like that word. That sounds promising. Not a good one? Think about dinosaurs. That is not one of our moments. <laughs> okay. It's too uh, bad. But a building does get blown up. Uh, somebody gets shot, newspapers go about their unholy business. And in all, something happens uh, in the collective consciousness, kind of in the cultural ethos of our time that had dramatic effect. And so we're gonna we're gonna talk about what these things were, and we're gonna talk about what happened. And the really interesting thing is many of the things that people mean when they say we live in a postmodern culture, they're actually describing things that originated way before postmodernism happened. And they're never talking about postmodernity. So here we go. So it's 1919, and you're on the deck of a ship off the west coast of Africa, and you're watching a solar eclipse. Meanwhile, on the other side of the ocean, near Brazil in the tropical coast, another ship is also watching the eclipse. And in London, there is another guy who happens to be coordinating this experiment, Arthur Eddington, and he is also watching this solar eclipse. And the reason why is, 10-ish years earlier, depending on which publication you believe, a fellow by the name of Albert Einstein introduced the general theory of relativity. And nothing happened. In scientific circles, it was debated, and a lot of people dismissed him. But he had this massive problem, which is that relativity is very, very difficult to test. And there's a super obvious reason why. He's arguing against Newtonian physics, and I say, Newton, and what do you think of? Apples falling on people's heads. Exactly. Apples falling on people's heads, or like, you know, like balls rolling across a table. Or like that guy in the Count of Monte Cristo, like hitting the things together, the rocks. You know that part? No. I'm Where oh, the Abbey Feria, he's like hitting the rocks together on the desk, going like, for every action in science, there is an equal and opposite reaction. I should have paid closer attention to that movie. You can learn all kinds of things from that movie, uh, besides the fact that Jim Caviezel is a very compelling actor. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what his last name is. <laughs> okay, so Newtonian physics. To prove it, you don't actually have to leave your office. You have this, you know, organized mechanical universe, and you can get a ball rolling and watch the fact that it keeps rolling unless something hits it, and you're like, boom, Newton is right. If you are Einstein and you say, hey, mass and energy creates gravitational wells or something like that, people are like, prove it. And he's proven it a little bit, like with watching Mercury, but... In the 19-teens, nothing has happened until this moment when Albert Eddington realizes, oh my gosh, with a solar eclipse, we're going to be able to look at stars that are almost right behind the sun. And if we look at them from three different spots on the Earth, if we're like massively distributed across the Atlantic Ocean, then 
we can actually see if the light from those stars shows up in different places. And it does. I don't know what that means. What it means is that the gravity well of the sun is actually influencing the passage of light. And for the first time, they're actually able to see it and go, wow, Einstein is right. General relativity is right. Okay, okay, I get it. And the important thing for you and me is that that doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) But if you are living in London or anywhere else in the world at the time and you picked up a newspaper, check this out. So here are three headlines from 1919. And just watch this progression. November 10th. Lights all askew in the heavens. Men of science more or less agog over results of eclipse observation. Six days later. Don't worry over new light theory. Physicists agree that it can be disregarded for practical purposes. Two weeks later, Einstein expounds his new theory. It discards absolute time and space, recognizing them only as related moving systems. Do you get any of that? So the first one, I love that they use the word agog. And it's kind of like, woohoo, this new thing might be happening. And the second one is like the push against that, right? Yes. Like, no, 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 no. It's okay. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. And then it feels like the third one, everything kind of falls apart. Right, exactly. And the thing that I notice as I read those titles is I am getting those impressions, but I don't know exactly what they're talking about. Like, I can even read the the headline, which is actually telling you the most about Einstein's theory, discards absolute time and space, recognizing them only as related moving systems. Yeah, that's the one where I sort of go... Oh, this is where relativity and it's all relative start to kind of get a little blurry. Exactly. Okay, so you have this thing happen where people are concerned. What about Newtonian physics? You have the press trying to reassure them, like, no, don't worry. Like, it's not a big deal. You can use Newtonian physics in your everyday life. But at the same time, this guy at Columbia University, Charles Lane, wrote that the same spirit of Russian Bolshevism had invaded science. And, you know, he's talking about— the- I have to pause you. What is the spirit of Russian Bolshevism? <laughs> Does that mean, like, looting in the streets? Exactly. I mean, this—so, yeah, it's the overthrow of the established monarchy. Okay. Thank you. I took AP history a long time ago. Well, it wouldn't be too much to, for someone to say, like, wow— you know, um, the spirit of the Arab Spring has invaded the science because what he's talking about is the established order is being decimated Mm. by this. Crazy. Right? This is why it matters for the person on the street is all they hear is, yep, the established order has been decimated. And so this thing enters kind of the public consciousness, which is like, oh, I guess it is relative, which is why fast forward 100 years And you can be sitting at a coffee shop, and if someone were to be like, yeah, but what is space? Or, yeah, but I mean, what is time? You might, like, nod to each other, like, I mean, who really knows? Which is, like, horrible, right? Because there's a difference between what seems to be happening being different than what's happening and nothing being real. Yeah, say it again slowly, because I heard you, but it also needs to be said again. Exactly. So, in physics, there's a huge difference between going, like, wow— It looks like Newton's model is right, but it isn't. That's one thing. It's a whole other statement to go, it looks like Newton's model is right, but we have no idea. We cannot know what is happening in the universe. Right. It's impossible and pointless to know. It's sort of what it's all relative has come to mean. Exactly. When, you know, really not being a physicist myself, I can only like understand the outline of the fact that Einstein was forwarding this much more robust way of studying and cataloging and identifying and describing physical systems. So you can know a lot about an Einsteinian universe. Uh, It's very different than the way that Einstein lands in the average person on the street's mind, which just goes like, wow, I guess my material experience of the world is ultimately foundationless. Although, probably most people wouldn't phrase it that way. They wouldn't have the ability to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, but, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But they would kind of go like, oh, have I guess... experience, though. Yeah, I guess right. it just doesn't... I guess my experience is just... It's just relative. That feels, that feels totally true to my experience in 
talking with people in the coffee shop today, even conversations in college or before college, even in high school, as you kind of try to push into sort of the world of absolute truth, you'd hit that first wall of like, well, there are some things you can know, but like even what you'd think of as love, that looks different in a different country, in a different time. And and so really, you just kind of have to just mind your own business. Exactly. And I've had that same thing where, you know, what they're looking at you is they're looking at you and they're saying, well, really, they're only related moving systems. And there's this like great quote by Joy Gresham, C.S. Lewis, the woman he ended up married, where she's talking about her education and you know, she's like, bodies are only matter and matter are only atoms and atoms are only energy and I forget what energy is only. Where mm. She's kind of laughing at the fact that when a person says, well, they're only related moving bodies, what they're trying to say is like, well, you know, there's nothing actually there. Whereas saying they're only related meaning bodies just means they're a different kind of thing that you can also know about. Mm. And so you're saying that this, 1919 is one moment on uh, out of five that you've chosen that are going to help understand postmodernism. Well, exactly. So this one, 1919, this one gets us going because it lays the stage where science has been shaken up, it's safe to say, but it's preparing kind of the uh, landscape of civilization uh, to receive these other philosophies, which... Might have been very different, but no, we'll get to that in just a second. I'm ready. All right, so the next one, Sam, clear your mental canvas. That was easier to do than I had hoped. (laughs) (laughs) You're in Paris, and it's World War II, and you're living under Nazi occupation. And there's this French meteorologist who is living uh, in a POW camp, but he has bad eyes, and he's eventually granted civilian status, and he is released, and he goes back to Paris. And that matters because this fellow was a writer, and he ends up writing two plays which are not censored. That's the whole moment. What? He writes two plays which are not censored, and why that matters is because that guy was actually a philosopher by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. Okay. I recognize the name. Okay, so I'm going to be butchering a lot of French names in the course of this because a lot of postmodernism and post-structuralism came from France. Um, but we're just going to call him Sartre or Sartre. You guys can fact check me, my linguists out there. But Sartre is the definitive figure in the philosophy of 20th century existentialism, which I'll explain more about in a second. He became the influential figure largely because of his literary successes in occupied Germany, you know, with these two plays, The the Flies and No Exit. And he's super controversial because the fact he's not censored makes him seem like he's a collaborationist, but people know he's a socialist and he's part of the resistance movement. And so suddenly this guy, who maybe no one would have ever read, is one of the most intriguing literary figures living in Europe. And when you say not censored, you mean like by the government or by himself? Oh, yeah, like the, the Nazis literally let the plays happen. Oh, and it wasn't like because they were anti Nazi. But were were they? Well, they were weird, right? So there's a lot of debate about that. But they're plays that whatever else they do, you know, The Flies, he basically retells this Greek drama. And given that, you know, the Nazis really wanted to associate themselves with classical civilization, they, like, let it go. But in the course of this play, he actually outlines his existentialist philosophy. And so here's where the effect becomes. Start becomes really popular because of these plays— which are aired in this period when there's not a lot taking place. And also it's the, you know, Second World War, which a lot of people were very concerned about. So not a lot taking place. Well, you know, On a a philosophical landscape, you mean. Yeah, exactly. The third thing that Sartre wrote and released that same year was on being in nothingness. Ugh. I already don't like it. Yeah. So where we're going is, let me just say, there are a lot of... existentialist philosophers out there. Uh, You know, there's a notable one who you may or may not think of when you think of Christian existentialism is Kierkegaard. Oh, okay. 
That would be a not thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's already lived and died, and he could have been the definitive voice of existentialism, which is about to become incredibly popular, but he isn't. Sartre becomes the definitive voice of what existentialist philosophy means. Mm. And that matters because I'm not going to try to explain what existentialist philosophy means here, but it emphasizes this core dimension of freedom, that we're set in the world as free beings, and we have to make choices. And those choices are going to be really important in who we end up becoming. Whose philosophy is this? This is existentialism, generally. Yeah, okay. But there are little things that you can slip into your existentialist philosophy. And if you're Sartre, I'm just going to read a quote from him. What are we then if we have this constant obligation to make ourselves what we are? If our mode of being is having the obligation to be what we are? He concludes, we are playing. We are playing at being particular roles. Here's why that matters. Sartre has this thing that goes, your existence precedes your essence. You you come into the world and there's nothing really about you besides your freedom. And then through living and making choices, you become a something. And so we're all just playing at being different somethings. He's one of the only existentialists who actually says that. You know, Kierkegaard maintains that there are real things in the world that we could become through our real choices. But instead, the brand of philosophy that, you know, Sartre, he ends up being the most popular philosopher in his own time ever. Like 50,000 people attended his funeral. He's this major literary figure. He dates Simone de Beauvoir. He hangs out with Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. Like, he is a who's who kind of guy. He, like, chairs this tribunal to try to bring the United States to justice for, like, war crimes in Vietnam. He's kind of a somebody in the world. His house is bombed twice by a paramilitary organization in France. He's a crazy guy, you know, who does a lot of interesting things. But this whole time, kind of what he's telling people in his version of widely distributed existentialism is you have to make choices to become something. But what he doesn't believe is that there are real roles in the world that are set for you that you could fulfill. And there is a massive difference between becoming something that is authentic, between becoming something because you chose to be so, and becoming something that is true because it was who you were supposed to become. It kind of sounds like he does away with fate. Well, he definitely does away with fate, but he also does away with the idea of, like, an objective hand in the world. For example, Sartre would never say, hey, God actually has a destiny for you. You have an identity, and as you live and walk, you can grow into that identity, which is a much more powerful thing than just being told you can grow into any identity because that's where we get, like, that postmodern feeling of, like, wow, all there are choices, and... I have to make choices, but ultimately, none of them are better than any of the others because I'm only accountable to myself. And there's no roadmap telling me that there are some things I should move towards because it's what I'm made to do. Yeah, I think that's why I use the word fate because that's a more secular idea. And I'm I'm actually amazed at how much my internal agreements are lining up with Sart right now. The image that comes to mind is, did Bruce Wayne have to become Batman? And you could look at those those series and say, like, on the one hand, there was something that was ordained for you to become or to fail to become. That would be him becoming or not becoming Batman. But in the world of Sartre, he could have just as well become a watchmaker and there wouldn't have been a sense of loss of him not becoming Batman. Does that make sense? Exactly. And something inside of me sort of goes, yeah. I think I actually kind of agree with Sartre right now. I think I kind of agree with at least the general idea of like, there isn't a clear cut definition of me that I'm supposed to become. And if I don't achieve that, I've failed. There's a general direction of goodness, a general direction of badness, a general direction of kind of apathy, a general direction of productivity. And I kind of want to like get in the nice area of the Venn diagram. Yeah. 
I think the thing that I feel about that is, you know, because I wrestle with when I think about Sartre because I like him in many ways. And, you know, I like the idea that he actually says, like, no, you actually have to think between meaningful alternatives and choose between them. But there is a profound isolation in contrast with someone like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who writes that each creature cries out, what I do is me, for this I came. Meaning, you know, in your Batman illustration, Bruce Wayne didn't have to become Batman. But Sartre would say there was nothing in his experience that could tell him about the kind of role he was supposed to fulfill in the world. Whereas I think I would say there were many things in his story, there were many things in his identity that gave him coordinates to who he could become. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that too. The crazy thing in thinking about Sartre is we are now faced with a cultural situation where most people think you cannot differentiate between meaningful alternatives. Like, there's a lot of paths you could take. The only thing you can do is choose. There's no way to decide between them. And if that feels true, that's actually much more of a consequence of the way that postmodern concepts and surrounding concepts have entered public culture than something that's actually true about your life. Like, there actually are real ways to know the kinds of decisions that you should make and the kinds of things that you were called to do. Right, yeah, I can hear all of those sort of guidance. Put those people that are called to help people with their callings, and they can all hear them yelling outside, just wanting to be let in to say like, no, there are things in your story that will point you in helpful directions that are, anyway. And we will let those people in to talk to you at another podcast. <laughs> exactly. All right, number three, look at these photos. <laughs> okay, so... It looks like Soviet housing, like big, boring, um, Lego-shaped buildings. And it's a building that's being demolished from the center out. It looks intentional. It looks controlled. There's an empty street. And the building is just eviscerated afterwards, and there's just like a block of rubble. Yeah. So what you're looking at is the death of modernism. Oh, right. Because modernism, spoiler, we actually recorded this podcast once before. And so this is our second take at it. But if I remember correctly before, you're right, like, this is going to be helpful for these people to hear. Yeah. Modernism is the idea that there are efficient spaces and ways to accomplish certain things. You have boxes in which you live, right? And you have boxes in which you work. And you have boxes in which you drive and get from work to home. Yep, at least modernism in architecture, okay. just for our literary friends listening. Right. Okay, so keeping that photo in mind, which Sam has just described, we're going back behind Sartre, and we're going right back to the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s, when there is a Swiss-French architect whose name is Le Corbusier. Actually, that's not his name, that's his nickname. It means the raven. Oh. But that's what he went by his whole career. And so he's a super interesting guy. You know, he comes on the scene and he teaches himself to be a painter. And then he teaches himself to be an architect. And he's really interested in this form of painting called purism, which is very, very much like cubism. And cubism is what Picasso did. So what kinds of shapes are coming up in your mind when I say that now? Uh, other than cubes. Cubes is a great starting place. <laughs> and also all is kinds it? of crazy freaking shapes <laughs> making up, you know, Mostly geometric planes. stuff, right? Totally. Like, like a triangle for a nose. Yeah, exactly. A face that's like 17 different planes. Which is just so fascinating, right? Because a triangle isn't a nose. But you can see part of the modernist impulse in painting and in architecture here where they're like, we are going to reduce a nose to the base essence of a nose, which is really just a triangle which obviously, like, isn't true. and right. they, But the interesting thing going for the modernists is they were reducing things to the basic way that the eye made sense out of space, right? So they like, oh, the eye makes sense out of space by, like, line, color, texture, form, shape. And so we're going to have, like, just a big white wall. And it's really striking because it's part of the way the eye sees, but there's no way to think that, like, that's what a wall should be. Anyway, this is what happens, Sam. Le Corbusier becomes a painter. He becomes an architect. Uh, he's pioneering this thing of modernism, which is like a lot of cube-shaped houses, like up on concrete pylons, like very early Bond film looks, 
that mid-century modern look where, like, everything is square, everything is concrete, everything is glass. And, you know, it's super interesting because he actually starts to, like, build models of cities. And his models of cities look exactly like the way cities look in, like, every dysutopian movie of all time. Like, Equilibrium or anything where, like, Charisse Theron's the heroine and, like, you know, (laughs) there's, like, Concrete building, concrete building, concrete building. Concrete I don't know. Mad building. Max Fury Road. There wasn't really a lot of buildings, but you know, I guess I guess what you're saying <laughs> that's true. Okay, so just equilibrium. <laughs> so as Lake Corbusier is working, um, feel free to Google image some of his buildings after this. They're all super interesting. He does a lot of them. He ends up being pretty influential in submitting this plan for the League of Nations building, which doesn't end up getting chosen, but it's really cool looking, and they use that design to develop some bond housing later. But he's getting this idea that you can actually build the perfect shape for living. Mm. And that's the concept that you just described, where a person can be like, oh, well, what does a person need to live in? Uh, They need a little living space, a little sleeping space, a little functional kitchen, and that's it. And so we can build, like, these big rectangular apartment buildings and... He actually thinks that you can use buildings like that to, like, cure poverty. In his designs of cities, what he's trying to say is, like, hey, do we want to bring this city to the future? Do it like this, and everyone's life will be better because this is the perfect box for living in. Okay. All right. My mind's now going to, like, what's the difference between the crack stacks versus, you know, like, that actually working? Okay. Well, perfect. So, uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't work. No. St. Louis, there's this housing project called Pruitt Ego. I'm not sure if that's how it's said, but phonetically it looks like Pruitt Ego. And it was this triumphalist modern vision, which was like, wow, St. Louis, like we have a lot of poverty. Uh, you know, we're trying to recover from like changes in the way manufacturing's taking place. So we're going to build these very Soviet looking, like rectangular brick and concrete buildings where everyone can live and with the basic needs of living taking place, uh, people will be free to think about work and leisure and walking and stuff like that. And obviously it becomes like a den of crime and people get trapped there, people are getting murdered. And so in 1972, the important thing about that photo you just saw is that takes place on television. Hmm. They broadcast the destruction of this housing project and in so doing kind of sound the death knell of modernism because they're going like, hey, look, here is our top-down plan to build a perfect solution for poverty and we're literally blowing it up on primetime television. Yeah, it's crazy. This is what happens for everyone else. So you're living after 1972, you've seen this happen, you've seen these like, big plans to make everybody wealthy fail. Uh, And this little shift takes place, which is that you go, okay, no top-level plan is going to work. Therefore, everything has to come from the ground up. Therefore, kind of that distrust over someone who comes in and goes like, we're going to do urban renewal and we're going to do it this way. The problem is that kind of bleeds over and it starts tainting the way that people think about there might be knowable core values for human life and there might be ways to accommodate those values. But nobody wants to hear about it anymore because we've seen it not work. Exactly. And I kind of like want to pull open the blinds of our recording studio here and go like, there is Colorado Springs and there is the opposite of modernism. So there's what happens when You know, they blow up Pruitt Ego and people go like, okay, modernism's not going to work. And so people kind of, you know, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but they go like, okay, just so do whatever. And you're like, (laughs) strip malls. Strip malls, like sprawling, like. Everybody gets a house. Food deserts, for example. Right. Like like these huge tracks where there's no grocery stores and like. No no urban planning, essentially. Yeah. Places where you can't bike to anything, (laughs) right? Like, and you can't. There are no spaces to, like, interact with other people. Like, all of those things start coming in. Because while people have gone, like, yes, modernism is not going to work, they haven't gone, like, okay, well, what do human beings need? And how can we build a system that's going to accommodate those needs? And the crazy thing is, is that 
doesn't limit itself to architecture. Think of institutions like a school, to pick an example at random. He says with dramatic flair. Where people are pretty unwilling to think about what are the core needs of a human being and how can we build a system that's going to accommodate those needs, right? We're like, everyone's like, no, 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 no. You, that is, you cannot do like a top-down thing like to shape people. Like, therefore, you're just going to offer a bunch of random classes that kind of cover the corpus of, you know, the knowledge of civilization, which is going to do them very, very, very tiny, if any, amounts of good for my lobbyists out there. <laughs> that one makes sense? Yeah, it does. So two more. Here we go, guys. Buckle your seatbelts. Number four, we're leaving the 20th century and we're going to the misty edges of time of the 1800s. Why, why are we going backwards? Okay, well, here's the thing. This is that thing, of, again, that people think like... Time moves in one direction or is it just a thing that interacts with another thing? <laughs> that is a very good question. No, people think that postmodernism like happened at the end of the 20th century. I feel like it happened like yesterday. Like I mean, it was relatively. Or it's like soon. happening right now. Well, it's over just for everybody listening. But it's postmodernism is over. Postmodernism is over. But they blew up that modern building in the 60s, in the 70s. But postmodern concepts. And concepts that look like postmodern concepts are still kind of floating so that, yeah, you're right. We still say we're living in a postmodern age, but that's only because these things have a lot of holding power. They're pretty deeply entrenched in our minds. Okay. All right. So back to the 1800s we go. Back to the 1800s. Okay. So the idea that words don't really mean things came up a little bit earlier when we were talking about space and time. But we're still going to start number four with an experiment. Imagine you're in a coffee shop or at a bar and you're talking with a thoughtful friend about art and you give a definition like art is the way a person with vision communicates that vision for the world. And then your friend says, no, it's not. It's a creative dimension of human activity, but neither of us is right because you can't really know the meaning of words. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was like my love example. Exactly. Earlier. I didn't know you had that example. So, ah, so I mean, the, so this, I mean, this has happened to you, though. Right. Sure. Totally has. And this is actually, I think, yeah, this happened to most people with being like, man, like, this idea that you can't know the meaning of words, and so you can't really know things. <laughs> Let's just say it's a friend you don't meet up with for coffee again. Unless you think they're really, really cool, in which case then you try to agree with them. And you just, and you just like try to talk about basketball instead. Okay, so where did this come from? Another French name, about to get totally hacked in half. There's a linguist, and his name is Ferdinand du Saussure. And he's interested in historical linguistics, which includes such interesting gems as ancient vowel systems and a dissertation that was on Sanskrit. So... This guy, he wants to talk about, like, you know, the way morphology involves vowels and, like, you know, what a certain sound sounded like in the Celtic language. But right at the end of his life, 1892, he's offered a job in Switzerland at the University of Geneva, and he goes there. And he's still teaching on Sanskrit, and he's teaching on Indo-European languages. But, you know, right at the end, a few years before he dies, he starts teaching a course on a general theory of language. Um, and then he dies in 1913. Spoiler. But after he dies, 1916, two of his students put their lecture notes together and they publish a book based on his lectures on a new field in linguistics called structural linguistics. And it becomes outrageously popular. Which is saying something because that sounds pretty nerdy. Okay, well, people are thinking, like, you know, how are we going to treat language systems? Like, which direction is science going to take? And there's always competing theories, right? But structuralism in general, which maybe I won't get into, but there's a thing happening, and it's called structuralism. And structural linguistics looks like this thing, and so it gets adopted. This is why it matters. Structural linguistics, kind of broadly understood, is the idea that a language system exists kind of independently. It's an entity that exists between human beings using it and a real world, and you can study it. 
But at the core of structural linguistics is this concept that words are signs. Yeah, it's, it's like reducing language to math. Exactly. We're going to get a, a tiny bit of technical jargon here, but it's super important. So hang with us. Okay, so a sign has two parts. A sign has a signifier, like a word, microphone, and a signified, which is the concept of the microphone or the real microphone that I'm trying to get you to notice when I say the word. Right, so it's the image or the word, those noises your mouth just made, and then it's what that is pointing towards. Exactly. Those are the two things. And those two things are what a sign is. The signifier. The signifier. And the signified. And the signified. So the tool you're using and then the thing that you're talking about. Okay. Okay. So language is a collection of signs, and they relate to another in a lot of complex ways. But get this. This language is pretty popular for a while, but eventually the post-structuralists come along, like a guy named Derrida, who you may or may not have heard about. But, you know, if you're an English major, you've you've stumbled across his name. And they begin to point out that there is not a necessary connection between a signifier and a signified, right? They, They say, listen, you say microphone. There's nothing out there in the world that connects the word microphone with the real microphone. With that one argument, they were actually able to say that language doesn't connect to the world. Right. And I wonder how people would feel about words like Yahweh. Right? Take it exactly there. Take it to like the most important elements of your life where you're like, wow, I guess my words don't relate to things. Maybe my words create things. No, maybe my words help me, you know? And then you kind of get in those like cycles. But get this, that only happened because structuralism was the dominant theory of language, and it was a semiotic system. So all you had to do was say, hey, signs don't necessarily work. And the person goes like, wow, I guess my words don't have meaning. And there are other ways of thinking about language. There's like cognitive linguistics, and there's like, you know, performative speech theory. And there's lots of other ways of going like, hey, a language system doesn't have to be a sign system. Language can be but one way that you interact as real as making something, you know, to overcome isolation or to create real meaning between people. I'm just saying there were other theories at the same time that could have become the popular form of understanding language. But structuralism did, and then very insightful philosophers, who I actually like, destroyed structuralism. But because structuralism was what people thought of as how language worked, this thing happened where we started to think that our words didn't really mean anything or that you couldn't know the meaning of words. Right, and you can see how problematic that might be. Well, that's just devastating if you want to have real knowledge about the world. Yeah, it's sort of like that fear I've had from time to time where it's like your view of colors is different than everybody else's has ever been. And there's no way for you to know that because at least if you're consistent, like all the browns look the same to you and you look at it and you say, that's brown and that's what it looks like. And someone else looks at it and they go, well, they actually see green, but they call it their green brown because you're the oddball. Like you could literally see a whole different world than anybody else does. But as long as you like your language lines up correctly, you would never know that you were mad. And that's sort of like the fear of words can't actually connect to actual things because it's like, yeah, you can make the right sounds. You can draw the little like circle with the squigglies and we'll know you're pointing about the sun. But beyond that, you're, you're kind of sleeping on the edge of madness if, you, if words don't actually relate to, if love is not a thing that can be known. Yeah. If thought is not a thing that can be parceled out. It's, it's, I, I actually can feel like the darkness tugging in the back of my mind right now, just wanting to pull me into it. Right. Which is why I find myself being a pragmatist. That's interesting because we're actually headed towards American pragmatism right now. But the one thing that I would say there is here's just one other way of working with language from a body of theory called intersubjectivity uh, or interobjectivity, depending on who you are. And what it kind of basically says is, listen, there is actually no difference between the object 
that I'm thinking of when I say microphone and the word that I use to describe it. So, right, so I've got like a perfect relationship between the words that I'm using to interact with the world and the world itself. Now, that might seem fine and dandy, but then we have you also interacting with the microphone. And as we are both interacting with it over time, and as kind of our understandings of the world are intersecting, as we're realizing that we have differences and having to negotiate those differences, the real object becomes more and more known as we clarify the places that another person might be missing or as we, you know, point in a new direction that emphasizes some new quality of it. In which case, there are many ways of understanding language that goes, actually, there is a real world out there that is emergent and you can know a lot about it through your interaction and you're built to be interactive. And so while, yes, your position is relative that doesn't mean there is nothing actually out there. In fact, through negotiating our relative positions, we actually become more accurate. Not to just say things necessarily get better, but we can have more and more accurate uh, knowledge about the world. It sure seems to me like that's where the world is more in the direction of to an extent, right? So like when this language studies came out, we didn't all just say well, screw it. Like, there's no point in using words anymore because words can't actually convey any real meaning and let's just be done with everything. Um, instead, it was like we had those sorts of things on, on a low level as a culture. Um, so when we say dog, we can think of like many dogs, but we can still get by. And then if I know you on a personal level, we have a family dog that might be like a, an image that gets more and more conjured so like our, our connections grow there as a culture but it kind of seems like not to solve the issue out there but more to identify it is that maybe the more complex words never really got socially recovered i'll say and let us shift to number five all right so number five i debated about including this one but i kind of figured as a fun bonus all right so it's the 1800s, and people are wondering in the United States and elsewhere, oh my gosh, we're having more and more kids, and more and more people are going to work in factories. No one's educating them. How are we going to teach these niños? And so there's this fellow, Horace Mann, and he's campaigning for public schools, and he sees schools as contributing to a person's ability to make sound judgments in the world. There's this interesting quote, 1849, where he says, The elevating influences of good schools, the dark host of private vices and public crimes, which now embitter domestic peace and stain the civilization of the age, might, in 99 cases in every 100, be banished from the world. All right, so this is why this matters. So Horace Mann actually thinks that uh, there is a positive ethical dimension to education. Yeah. I think most people would agree with that. So they are building public schools and, you know, with varying levels of success, they like are establishing bureaucracies to educate kids. And if you're someone who cares about that kind of thing, you're like just thinking right now, like, oh my gosh, we're not going to get into that turbid history, are we? Uh, we're not. We're going to gloss over it super fast because uh, we're actually headed for this moment in 1916. But it's just suffice it to say that more often than not, if you lived in the end of the 1800s and you went to a public school, there were two things that were included in your curriculum. Uh, one of them was the Greek and Roman classics. Uh, the other one was some form of moral reasoning. This is where the pragmatists come in. John Dewey out of the University of Chicago. Uh, great reformer. Uh, fascinating guy. And great decimal system. He was not the same guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he thinks that a school is supposed to give people like practical information about the world, which is great because if you're John Dewey and you're going like, listen, our students are coming out and they've read Virgil, but they don't know how civics work. We're doing them a disservice and he's agitating and they're like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll put that civics class in high school so that a person at least knows that we have like a bicameral legislature, if you happen to know that kind of thing. So he's advocating for something that like is more applicable to public life. Totally. So it's 1916. Schools are headed that direction thanks to the influence of John Dewey and others. And this guy, 
Abraham Flexner writes this thing that he's commissioned by the government to write. He's studying schools, and he's supposed to be building the new form. And what he writes is a modern school, and it outlines the kinds of thing the classroom should do. And there are two things that are noticeably absent from his recommendations. You want to guess what those are? Um, the classics? Yep. And that other thing. Moral reasoning. There you go. Exactly. All right. It's probably safe to say that when people think of postmodernism, some form of moral relativism enters the picture. Like, we don't know what's actually good. Or like, you know, that thing of like, yeah, but I mean, who's right and wrong? And this isn't a new concept. Like, some of the Greeks did this, but this kind of like, well, which truth? Well, which right? Like, yeah, this one's been going on for a while. Well, rightness is really just a way for society to stabilize itself. Oh. You know, that kind of stuff? Yeah. All right. People think that, uh, but unfortunately, most people have never been equipped with kind of the structure of how to have a conversation about what morals are. And this is a field called moral reasoning. The reason that the classics are also important is uh, the study of the myth is also a study of higher concepts like fate and good and evil. And when they don't count as knowledge anymore, it's no surprise that people go, oh, they're not included in the curriculum because you can't know anything about them. Get this, that has never been true about ethics. And we have, we have this massive cultural problem right now, which is on the one side, you have you know uh, ethical relativists they're not actually ethical relativists. They just are like uh, ethical agnostics who go like, yeah, well, I just don't think anything you can know about that. And you're like, okay, well, uh, well, interesting. I mean, what do you think about Lawrence Kahlberg or what do you think about cognitive developmental moral education or values clarification or Jean Piaget? Like all of these massive names and concepts and bodies of knowledge. You know, a person who says like, well, I don't think you can know about ethics usually doesn't know about those things. And on the other side, you have like, really intense ethical objectivism. You know, politicians love doing this all the time. Like, and and on all sides, I'm not saying like right wing, left wing. I'm saying like everybody's like, this is right. And unless you actually have a grid with which to analyze whether or not they're right, you end up either disbelieving a politician for saying that or believing them more than you should. And not just a politician, like many of the people in your world. So 1916. The classics, Virgil, the high values and the high virtues, uh, moral reasoning, Cicero, Kant, a lot of other guys are suddenly banished from the conversation. And you go like, okay, well, no wonder people have to choose between those poles of kind of being randomly ethically objectivist or being ethically agnostic. And let me address it very quickly. There actually are systems out there about where ethics come from. And those theories actually can be compared with one another because some are better. And you can decide which ones are accurate in identifying moral claims. And here's just one. And we'll go with Kant because, you know, he's kind of a big deal. Kant, even though he's accused of introducing relativism, and he kind of did, he's also an ethical objectivist because he thinks that Everybody is under the exact same moral law. And he calls it the categorical imperative. And he goes, everybody faces the exact same moral requirements. And there's kind of two, basically. And there's a test. And Kant goes, the first one is, in order to do a thing, you have to say everyone could do the same thing and there would not be a contradiction. And the second one is, which he kind of builds out of his ontology, is Kant goes, every person has to be viewed as an end in themselves. You have to treat them as a person worthy of value that you're interacting with for their own sake rather than to get something from them. Yeah, and can we just say, when was Kant again? 18th century. Right. If only we had come so far. Seriously. But you see, the thing is, if you have you know, studied Kant's metaphysics of ethics— you then have a real system. Like, if you buy that, you can look at someone's claims, and if someone goes like, is it right or is it wrong to steal in this situation? 
you have two tools. You're like, okay, well, you know, everybody would have to be able to do it. And you would have to treat people as an ends in themselves. And even though situations can be really complex, those tools can help you. They can actually help you find situations where you might say, yeah, it's okay in certain situations to steal. And the important thing is, then with much larger concepts, like the way that you're going to spend your money or the people that you're going to vote for or the way that you're going to think about the way nations should interact could actually have a solid ethical grounding that people could argue with with common terms. So you can see how a lack of that is devastating. And that started in 1916. We pulled, just yanked it from the governmental, the top-down school systems, right? Yep. And then you get this circular to people mistrusting the top-down systems when it comes to city planning. Exactly. In summary, when you think of all those put together, all of a sudden you get why when people say, oh, we're living in a postmodern age, what they really feel is disoriented. Like, we haven't come from anywhere. We might not be going anywhere. But all those things rolled together, like eroding people's confidence that you can talk meaningfully about what words mean and eroding their confidence in that you can verify things about the physical world and the sun and the stars and saying that nothing top down is going to work and saying that ethics like can't be determined and that we are in this existential vacuum where there aren't signposts to help us learn where we should go. Like all of that rolled in together, you actually end up with something that can be pretty culturally devastating. I find it really helpful to name all of these things because they help give a little bit more clarity of where you are, right? To name the forest for the trees, to name um, Victor Frankl in his Man's Search for Meaning writes on his experience of the Holocaust, a little bit different than um, Sartre. But he wrote that like how important it was for people to see themselves in their place and time. That if they could, mm. if they could place their suffering, even in a concentration camp, in a context they could actually survive it and they could survive it much better than people who lose their bearing and that setting becomes their whole universe and they just succumb to it. And that feels very true of right now. Like when I think about labeling our age as still somehow existing in the post-modern world, it's like, well, sort of? Maybe we're sort of living in that dystopian future if the rubble is this sort of fragmentation and this devastation and this building that's being destroyed here. Uh, these ideas is the post-apocalyptic. And I wonder what the history books will say. And actually, that might be very helpful because if what the history books said of us was this was the age of fragmentation, that sort of assumes that there will be an age when we are no longer or when there'll be another, there's a direction out. And it names, oh, I'm not just feeling like nothing has value and there's no point and I guess my my experiences in life really amount to nothing and so I might as well become a barista or uh, anything because nothing really matters. It gives you tools to name it. It gives you tools to not necessarily fix all the issues because that would be awesome. And if you're that person who can go out there and fix all those and, and call us into the new age, please do so. Please just, just start tomorrow. Yeah. But for myself and probably the average person to name our surroundings like Frankl did, is to actually walk well in them and through them and potentially out of them. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. You need to be sure to subscribe now and follow us on social media under Ansons Magazine. And of course, for articles and films, check out ansonsmagazine.com. <laughs>